Welcome to Living Free Today, a ministry of Cornerstone Fellowship in San Lorenzo, California. These podcasts are the weekly sermons of Dr. Michael L. Wilson. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 150. Psalm 150 is right before Proverbs 1. It is the last psalm. We have gone through all of the psalms. If you were here, you remember that Psalm 1. I preached on it on January 7th, 2018, and we have seen the world and our lives go through various changes and various movements in the time that I have been preaching through the Psalms. The Psalms end with a psalm that is purely about praise. The last five Psalms were about praise. Psalm 146 was an individual Israelite praising God for His grace and power. Psalm 147 The inhabitants of Jerusalem praise God for being returned from Babylon. Psalm 148, all creatures in heaven and earth praise God as their creator. Psalm 149, all saints praise God for being saved from their enemies. And Psalm 150 is every creature that has breath praise the Lord. There are only six verses in Psalm 150. Yet the word praise God or praise Him occurs ten times in those six verses. So it is a psalm about praise. It is a psalm that tells us who to praise, why to praise, and how to praise. So the first verse says, praise God in His sanctuary. When we think about the word sanctuary today... We think about this room that we're in. This is our sanctuary, we call it. Sanctuary means a holy place. And so when we think of where we're praising God, we praise Him while we're here, but where is God when we praise Him? Well, He is in heaven, in the heavenly sanctuary, where God is in heaven currently. It is a very holy place. We can also... See from this the idea that we praise God in His holiness. We praise God because He is holy. Holy means totally separate and totally other, totally different. God is not like us. We are not like God. Our understanding of God comes from His revelation. I cannot just sit in a room and ponder God and try to figure out who he is and come up with a correct answer. I actually have to go and say, well, what does God say about himself? And it's very clear. You can look starting back with Moses and the burning bush. What did the burning bush, God and the burning bush say? Remove your shoes. You're walking on holy ground. You're walking on ground where God is, where God's holiness is. And so... When we praise Him in His holiness, we are praising Him for what we've learned from Scripture, how He has revealed Himself 
And the more we know, the more we're in our Bibles, the more we study our Bible, the more facts, the more truths we know about God, and the more we can praise Him honestly and truly. There are those who say you do not need to know the Bible, that you just praise God out of your feelings. Well, that is not always true, that I must know true things about God. I must know, for in the last couple of Psalms, for example, that God has rescued Jerusalem, that God returned the Jewish people from Babylon, and they praise God for that, and we can praise God for that, because it shows His mighty power. It shows that through prophecies way back, God said that it would only last 70 years, and God managed the nations of the earth to put a person in power who was favorable to the Jewish people and allowed them to return. And we can read that story and we can say, praise God for that, that he is in control over the nations, that he is control over governments, that there is no government that is going to rise up, that is going to challenge God effectively or that God did not know about. We know from Scripture that if there is somebody in power, whether it be the dog catcher or the president, if there is somebody in power, God put them there. They are God's choice, and we can praise Him for that. We praise Him for His holiness, that He is above and outside of all of this, that when we have the turmoil that is going on in this world, God is not impacted. God does not have to change His plans. There is no plan B or C or D or Z with God. He gets done what He wants to get done, and we praise Him for it. We praise Him for His holiness. Now, when this psalm was written... They probably had Solomon's temple, and you had the holy place and the holy of holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, and this psalm is a description, if you will, of what their worship was like, of what they used in their worship, and it is an encouragement that they did it, and I'm sure whoever wrote it wasn't thinking that we'd be reading it today, but they understood that this psalm would be moved to the far reaches of Israel and the Middle East, and people would understand what is going on in Jerusalem at the temple. And so we praise God. We praise God in His mighty heavens. It says in part 2 of chapter 1, uh, verse 1, praise Him in His mighty heavens. God is in control in heaven. God has power in heaven. If you read through the book of Job, if you read through Genesis, if you read through Revelation, God is up there getting done what He wants to get done. God is doing what He wants to do. And even though people down here even today are shaking their fist at God, are blaming God for everything, are using all sorts of blasphemous words against God. God is in control and God is moving things along in the direction He wants to go and God will end up 
where he wants to end up when he wants to end up there and nobody on earth, nobody in the universe, nobody outside the universe can stop him or slow him down. And we praise him for that. We praise him for his power. We praise him for who he is. He is holy. And we praise him for what he's doing, his mighty heavens, his mighty acts. If you then go on to Verse 2, it says, praise him for his mighty deeds. So we know who God is. God is holy and we know that he does stuff, that God does stuff that is mighty. And the thought that is in the mind of every Jew, even today, when you speak about the mighty deeds. I used to work with an Orthodox Jew and we would talk about things like the Psalms. We talk about Jesus he didn't quite get into Jesus. He thought Jesus was a teacher. But when you talked about the Old Testament, he was all over it. And when I would use a phrase like God's mighty deeds, his mind, and every Jew who you say that to would initially think of the Exodus and where God with a mighty hand pulled the people out of Egypt into the wilderness to learn about him. This is foundational to the forming of the Jewish people and it is commemorated every year with a Passover celebration. We do not do a Passover celebration because we look to Jesus Christ and we say Christ is our eternal Passover lamb. I don't need to do the things that were done in the Passover to commemorate it. I read it and I say, wow, God does have a mighty hand. Even, you know, the Pharaoh was the ruler of the known world at that point. Nobody on earth could stand against Pharaoh. He, was the, he had the biggest army. He had the biggest resources. He could do anything he wanted and nobody could stop him. And God squished him like a bug and didn't even break a sweat. This is what God can do, and this is something that we can learn from this, and we can say, wow, look what God did. We can look at the flood. We can look at the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and how the, the balance of power was changed because of God's desire, because God said, I want this nation to be in charge now, now I want this nation to be in charge. And we can look at God's mighty hand about how he doesn't have to play catch up. We praise him. We praise him because of creation. We look at this world and we look at all that he's made and we're just amazed. And even though the world tries to minimize this world by talking about evolution, I'm going to praise God because of this world, because he made it, because he made you and he made me and he made all those trees and the oceans and the sand and all the you know, sea monsters and land monsters and all the things that are out there that we can look at and be amazed. We can be amazed and praise God. The difference between a believer in God and a non-believer is that somebody will look at a mighty Sequoia Redwood and worship it because it's a mighty really old thing. We look at it and we praise God and worship him for creating such a mighty beautiful old thing. We praise him because of the sky and the heavens. You look up 
And you can't even count the stars. You can't even name the stars. And we, we put telescopes and sensors out into space and we see even more, even though, you know, the scientists can't even count everything that's out there and God has named them all. God knows them all. He's in control of them all and he's given a name to every star and every planet and every moon that's out there, even though they are uncountable by humans. And we, we stand in awe and we praise him. We say that's fantastic and you are great and mighty for doing this. We praise him because he made you and me, he made people, he made people in his image. And in making people in his image, we can worship him. And we talk about human dignity and we talk about the preservation of life. We do it from the standpoint of God made us individually and that is our worth. Our worth is not our job, our worth is not our country, our worth is not our political affiliation. Our worth is that God made us. And I've had this said to me since I was a wee tot, and I've said it to others. And when God made you, God don't make no junk. God made each one of you beautiful and great and wonderful, and that is our value. That is why we treat each other with love and respect, because we are a creation in the image of God. And for us on this side of the cross, we don't have to look back at the Exodus, for example. We can look back at the cross and stop there and say, if you don't have anything to praise God for that's a mighty act, try the cross and try the forgiveness of your sins and try that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you and made a way even though nobody was looking for that way. He made a way for you and brought you through and forgave your sins and gave you eternal life and brought you into the family and gave propitiation of God's wrath. God is satisfied. We have atonement for our sins. Our sins are covered. We have redemption. We were brought back out of the kingdom of Satan. We are brought back, paid with a price, and brought into the kingdom of God. If you're watching the news and Israel comes up, that should be a point for praise, is that God made that nation. And even though they're kind of divided on how they're following him, we need to praise God every time we realize that there is no physical reason, no military reason on this planet for Israel to exist. Nobody over there wants the country of Israel, but yet it sticks out like a sore thumb of God's love and God's greatness. And Israel's going to be there. Israel's going to be there until Jesus Christ comes back and sets down his foot on the Mount of Olives. That country that he's looking at when he comes down is going to be Israel because it is going to last for as long as this earth lasts. And then when the new earth and the new, new heavens and new earth are built, God's residence will be in the new Jerusalem, which will be way bigger than the current Israel. And so we praise him for all the great things that are done. 
We had Teen Challenge here last week, and one of the value of Teen Challenge is that they have testimonies. They talk about how their life was and how they got involved in things of the world, the drugs, the alcohol, the sex, and then God saved them out of that. That is a mighty work. You look at the things that are being offered in the world, the 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 counseling and the mindfulness and these sorts of things that they say will fix all of your problems. No, they are useful for calming, but they don't save you. Only Christ saves you, and only because Christ can come into the lives of the Teen Challenge people and make them a new creation can we say, yes, God is, is doing, that's a mighty work. That's something we cannot do with our technology or our drugs to save somebody and to have them not go back to it. There's, old, there's less than a 2% recidivism in Teen Challenge while your other ones that are worldly based are in the 80 or 90% recidivism, the idea that when God fixes something, he fixes it for all eternity. And then it says, we worship him according to his excellent greatness. When we think of God's greatness, what do we think about? Well, he's omnipotent. He's able to do anything. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipresent. And we praise him because he's everywhere. God is love and we praise him. God is truth and we praise him. God is perfect justice and we praise him. God is majesty, as it says in Psalm 8. And we praise him for that. You read through the Bible, Old or New Testament. And the attributes of God, the greatness of God is on every page that we, you know, we learn from this and we can make a list. doesn't have to be mental. We can actually write it down. As I said before, I write down a lot of my prayers because I'll forget. If you say, please pray for me, I'll say, okay, and forget. So I, I write it down and then I pray from a written down list. In the same way, I can write down attributes of God. I can write down greatness of God. And while I'm praying for you, I can praise God, and I can know in my heart of hearts, and my knower, I can know that if you've got a need, and I'm praying for it, and then I praise God for being omnipotent, I can connect the spiritual dots and say, God's omnipotent, your problem is not bigger than God, he can fix it. I can pray with confidence. I can pray that God's going to take care of things, that God's going to make it work, that God's going to fix whatever broken heart or broken spirit or broken bank account or broken house or whatever's broken, God can fix it in his time, in his perfect way. And then the psalmist goes and starts listing all the fun things they did in the temple and all the way they praise God, the one sense you have from this is that their worship was loud. Their praising of God was a loud event that you could probably hear because the temple was stone and on a mountain. 
you could probably hear it for miles as it echoed through the hills around Jerusalem. This is not a recipe. This psalm says, trumpet. We don't have a trumpet. We don't say our worship is useless because we don't have a trumpet. That's not how you're supposed to read this. They are describing what they did, what they had. We then look at our people, we look at our skill, and we say, we have this, and we have this skill, and we use this, and we write verses 7 and 8 in our hearts, knowing that we have, you know, a guitar, and we have our voices, and we have had drums, and we have had other things as people come and go, we are not less than their worship. Remember, Christ said, Christ said, I will build my church that is taken generally to mean he will bring the people he wants here, and that means he will bring the gifting and the musical talent that he wants here. And right now we are dead center in the will of God with our praise and how we do it, we've got no problem. And so when we look at this, we say, praise him with a trumpet. Well, back then they didn't know about valves on a Doc Severinsen, Tonight Show, great trumpet player. Winton Marcellus, great trumpet player. Maynard Ferguson, great trumpet player. These are fantastic trumpet players. They did not have that type of trumpet. They did not, they knew about brass, but they didn't know about valves, and they didn't know that you could change the sound with a little machine called a valve. So what is a trumpet when this was written? Well, it's a ram's horn. It was a curlicue ram's horn. Apparently, if you cut off a ram's horn and you hollow it out and you smooth it out and you make a very small end at one end, when you blow it, it makes a very loud sort of sound. It's called a shofar, S-H-O-F-A-R. Go to Amazon.com, look it up, 200 bucks. You can get yourself a biblical trumpet, a ram's horn. There are some churches. I knew a church, I know of a church in Daly City that I've been there a couple times with mission conferences. They start every service, every service, by blowing a ram's horn because they took this kind of as a command. We don't have a ram's horn. We're not going to do that. They did. It sounds, you know, multi-tonal, blah, sort of thing. They just blow it once and that starts their service. This is what a trumpet is in this. It is a ram's horn. It was blown once as a call to worship. It was blown once to say, hey, we're going to praise God now, an announcement sort of thing. It then says a lute. A lute, when you were in elementary school, they had these wooden tubes with holes in them called recorders. And you blow in it, and you kind of like a clarinet without a reed. That is a lute. It is a, you would change the sound by covering the holes or having a big piece of wood or a small piece of wood. They knew how to make musical instruments. They knew how to make things that sounded well. And so this is a, some translations say flute, 
It wasn't a classic flute that hadn't been invented yet, but the idea of blowing in a tube and making a sound by covering up the holes is throughout Scripture. It's a modern-day recorder. They had harps. They had big harps. Today, when you say an orchestral harp, I would have something that I would sit in a chair and I would lean it up against me. You've seen harpists, and then you play the harp like this. They had that. They knew about stringed instruments. They had big harps. They had small harps. They had a tambourine. We have a tambourine. Tambourine's a very old thing. They would um, use that in their dancing. They had dancing in their worship, and they would do it with the tambourine. And interesting, except for the plastic and stuff, the tambourine hasn't really changed in 3,000 years. It's a very old instrument, a very stable instrument, apparently. Nobody could improve upon it. They would put the animal skin over it. You've seen tambourines that have a drum sort of face on it. This was how they would use it. They would rattle it and pound it and rattle it, you know, da -da 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 -da, and dance around. They would dance and they would have strings. They knew strings. They would have a variety of strings. There would be handheld strings, usually uh, themed on the harp sort of thing. Anything from a small little harp that you could carry around all the way up to a big harp. They hadn't really figured out frets and the stuff that they have in modern guitars and things of that nature. But they were trying. They, you know, we say, oh, we got a cello. They didn't have a cello. They had something like a cello, but it was plucked. The bows didn't come until later. They had a pipe. A pipe is like, it's called today a pan pipe. You would have a, a row of different, probably bamboo, uh, of different lengths. And then you blow across them and you get different tones. And so they knew about music and they knew about tones. It wasn't just noise. And then symbols. It says sounding symbols and loud crashing symbols. These are actually two types of symbols. The sounding symbols, a lot of commentators say it's like castionets, handheld symbols that click more than bang all the way up to the big old symbols like we got on the drum set. If you've ever seen a marching band, Right behind the bass drum, you have this guy with big old three-foot-across cymbals going crash, crash, crash. Those sorts of things they knew. They knew how to make metal instruments. They knew how to make metal things that when you bash into them, they sound good. And the idea here is this is noisy stuff. It is noisy, and the belief is that the louder it was to get the worship going, the more people would get into the sense of how big God was. The bigger the sound, the bigger God's view in your mind was be, is kind of how they saw it. We do not uh, do really loud stuff here. Some churches do a lot of cymbals and shofar and drums and those sorts of things to get that sense. And I think it's up to the congregation. It's up to what the congregation likes and what the con congregation senses. And then it ends very simply after all this loud stuff by saying, 
Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Not everyone who has breath, but everything praise the Lord. And some have said, well, we won't be breathing in heaven. Well, I don't know. They're singing in heaven. If I sing in heaven, I'm moving air. And so there's something going on in heaven that people are singing and praising, and we don't get a sense of the heavenly orchestra, but I'm guessing that when we finally get there and see it all, that's not in a vision of John, that we are going to see that it is a large, multi-instrument sort of orchestra. It's going to be every means that we have come up with to praise God is going to carry on in heaven. And as long as you are still breathing, you need to praise God. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are never going to stop breathing. You're just going to take a pause and wake up in heaven. And in doing that, your breath will be used to praise God for all eternity. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this understanding that praise is not just an hour a week, but praise is our whole life. Praise is something that occurs as long as we are breathing, and we can have loud praise, and we can have quiet praise, and we can have thoughtful praise, and we can have all sorts of praise, and all of it, if it is true praise, is true praise of you. Lord, I praise you for all of this revelation, for all of this truth, and ask your wisdom as we go from here today how to praise you better. We ask all this through the blood of Christ. Amen. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 180 Llewellyn Boulevard, San Lorenzo, California. Our Sunday morning service is at 1045 a.m. Our website is livingfreetoday.org and our phone number is 510-278-2622. May God continue to bless you as you serve your King. God bless.